he kind of has one of those moments where he realizes that everything that's happened to him for the past 15 years of his life has been divinely orchestrated by God. Every step, every struggle, every battle, every setback and victory, everything that's happened, every word that was spoken was from God to bring him to this place. That it's the Lord that has set me up over, over Israel as king. And, and it's an important and, the second half of it, is that God did it for his people and his namesake. In other words, David realized that this has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with David. With my gifts, my calling, my talent, what I can bring to God or what I can bring to the nation. This has everything to do with God, his name, and his people. And that was an important realization for David to have, because Saul never had that. Saul always thought that it was about Saul. And David realizes this isn't about David. This is about God, his name, and his people. And so we come now into chapter 6. And so it happens, and it's because of this, because of David's realization that this is God and not man, that the very first thing that David wants to do, now that he's the king of a united Israel, is that he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, into the city of God in Jerusalem and make it the centerpiece of the nation. And you just think about the significance of this. I mean, here David is newly inaugurated. And think about the amount of things that he has on his plate. He has to build a military. He has to worry about raising funds. He has to worry about figuring out and learning all the revenue systems and how all of these different government things work in Israel. He has the eyes of the entire nation looking at him, all of them seeking to have their cause taken up by the king. And yet, with all of that looming over him, the one thing that is supremely important to David at this point in his his reign is making God the national center of Israel. And so that's his desire. He wants to bring the Ark of God to Israel. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was that box that God told Moses to make that would be in the holiest place in the the tabernacle, in that, that house of worship. It was a box that contained the two tables of stones. It was covered by a golden slab that was called the mercy seat, which was where God said, I will meet with you. It was overshadowed by two cherubim that were kind of shaped out of pure gold whose wings covered over that mercy seat. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the glory and the presence of God. It was the very place where God said, I will meet with man. This is the symbol of my presence with you and of my glory amongst you as my people. So that was what the ark represented. And so by David wanting to now bring the ark into Jerusalem, he is saying, I want the glory of God, the presence of God, the word of God, and the person of God to be at the epicenter of all that we are and all that we do as a nation. That's David's intent. That's what's in his heart, in his mind, and before him in making this move. It has nothing to do with anything political uh, or or in any way trying to um, do anything on the earthly plane. This has to do with God and his nation and what David wants his kingdom to reflect. I want God to be the center of all that we are and all that we do. And so David's heart is in the right place in all that he's doing here. However, God is about to teach David a very important lesson. 
And he's going to drive this lesson home right at the very beginning of David's reign. And, and the lesson that God is going to teach David in, in the events that, that, that follow this is that a right thing must be done in the right way. That the ends do not justify the means with God. That if you're going to do a right thing, you've got to do it the right way. How many of us on a daily basis are tempted in some way with the um, prospect of compromise? Compromising. <laughs> you know, if I just kind of, you know, do this this way, you know, we can get to this outcome and this outcome will be good and probably there won't be any consequences. I mean, compromise is something that comes towards each one of us on a daily basis. And if you think about, you know, the, the positions that we occupy, you know, in our homes, in our businesses or wherever, you know, compromise can carry either a, a heavy price tag or, or a light one, depending on where we are and what it is. But the, the higher our role and the higher our responsibilities, the greater the temptation and also the greater the risk in the compromises that we make in life. Now, David is the king. And, and David, every day of his life, is going to have to get things done. And he's going to learn real quick that there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And God is going to teach David here and teach us through David that a right thing must be done in the right way if that right thing is going to glorify and please God in its accomplishing. You understand? That it isn't about just getting it done, but if God is going to be pleased with what's done, then it must be done in the right way. So David's heart completely in the right place here. David's mindset, all that is, is in David is right. But watch what happens. It says in verse 3, it says that they, and that is the people that now have been tasked with bringing the ark to Jerusalem, it says that they set the ark of God upon a new cart. Now, if you read when God commanded Moses to create and to make this ark, God told Moses that the four corners of this box are to have rings. And the purpose of those rings is so that staves, which is King James plural for staffs, wooden bars, can pass through those rings from corner to corner so that when the ark is transported, it can be carried by the priests. And so God had a very specific method whereby he wanted his glory carried. He wanted it borne by priests and carried as it would move from place to place upon the lives of his people. But here what we see is that they're not doing it the way that God wanted it done, but rather they're employing the use of a new cart. Now, where did they get the idea that the ark of God would be transported on a cart? They got the idea from the Philistines. Because during the reign of Saul, remember, remember when Eli died way back at the beginning of our studies and the ark of God was taken and they said Ichabod and the, you know, the, 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 the son of the grandson of grand, yeah, the grandson of Eli died in the womb and, you know, this whole thing happened there. You know, the ark of God was taken by the Philistines and it was in Philistine territory during most of the reign of Saul. However, when the Philistines set the Ark of the Covenant up in the temple of Dagon, their god, 
The glory of God caused Dagon, the idol, to fall on his face and his hands to break. And so the Philistines said, we don't want this with us. This is causing us problems. We've all got hemorrhoids and issues because of the Ark of the Covenant. Get it out of here. And they said, well, how do we get it out of here? And they said, well, just get a couple of cows and get a cart and put the Ark on the cart and then just brand the cattle and, and see where they go. And so they go, and they go into Israel, the, the cows go into Israel this whole time being carried on this cart, and they go to the house of this man Abinadab, where the ark is being transported from, where it's stored for all of the time up until now. And so when they inquire and say, well, how are we going to get the ark from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem? They say, well, it came here on a cart. Let's just put it on a cart. Here's what happens. Oftentimes or it can happen, that the people of God can look at the world's ways of doing things and seek to employ worldly Philistine methods in order to accomplish spiritual and godly goals. And it must never happen. We must never look to accomplish godly goals according to worldly methods. Godly goals must be accomplished according to the means that God says that they're to be done. And that's an important, very important thing uh, that, that's done here. And so the cart was the Philistines' method. They're borrowing the Philistine ways, but they do it. So they put the ark upon a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And so these guys, uh, maybe they're commissioned by David in order to do this. They, they probably were Levites, which would somewhat qualify them, though, though we don't know if they were from the tribe of Kohath or not. But these guys begin to drive the cart. And so they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying, not carrying, but accompanying, going with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And so this great celebration now ensues as David is excited about bringing God into the center. It says that David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on cymbals and on cornets and on, uh, sorry, I said that twice, and on cymbals. And so, so now uh, this, this celebration, the music is arising. The people are worshiping. They're, 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 they're praising God. David is elated at what's going on here. He has 30,000, it tells us back in verse 1, of the choice men of Israel, all of the captains, the prominent families of the whole land have gathered together unto him. This is a huge celebration, a huge caravan of people moving along in here. The noise of it, the fame of it, uh, just a buzz in Israel because of this um, progression of people that are moving the ark of God. But then in verse 6, it says, and when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't touch the ark of God. You don't touch the glory of God if you're a man. You don't help God out because God is stumbling and, and God needs some stability from the hand of a man. 
For the oxen shook it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And so in the midst of this glorious celebration, the sound of the music, the people singing and dancing, the celebration and rejoicing, God brings this thing to a screeching halt. You know, you get the picture in, in your mind of, of a bunch of teenagers having a house party while the parents are away. And then all of a sudden the door opens up and mom and dad came home early and they walk over and the, they just take the, the needle on the record, scratch it right to the edge, the music stops, everyone comes to silence and looks at the door and there's mom and dad. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this 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 huge praise service, everybody's having this amazing time and the realization descends very quickly upon everyone that's there present that God is not enjoying himself, that God is not pleased with what's going on here. There's something very wrong with the scene uh, in the whole thing as this man Uzzah suddenly drops to the ground and, 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 and on uh, this day of David's celebration, one of the greatest days most likely of David's life, everything comes to a screeching halt and it tells us that Uzzah died there um, in, uh, in the midst of this whole thing. It says in verse 7, if you'll notice the words there, it says that God smote him there for his error. He says that this is his error. And you say, well, you know, what, what in the world is, is this, that it says Uzzah's error in the whole thing? Most likely, David commissioned Uzzah with this task. And, and Uzzah was the one that would be responsible for finding the proper way in this whole thing. Not only is it that Uzzah touched the ark, but Uzzah probably in charge of, uh, you, you know, this whole um, progression that's going on in this thing. And, and we get the idea from all this that Uzzah knew better in the whole thing. And what was Uzzah's error, error if we're going to um, kind of like try to put, put our finger on the whole thing? Uzzah's error at the very root of it is what we call syncretism. And what syncretism is, is syncretism is taking pagan or other ideas, other ways in which other uh, religions worship God and employing them in the worship of the true and the living God and, and basically saying that, well, that's okay because uh, our heart is in the right place, you know, and that's a no-no. <laughs> we don't take the things of other religions, bring them into Christian uh, things, and then um, sanctify them in order to honor God. We can't do that. There's a man named Tilden Edwards, and he claims to be a Christian. And who Tilden Edwards is, is he is the head of the Shalem Institute in Washington, D.C., which is one of the largest contemplative institutes in the United States of America today. And, and the whole contemplative movement is basically taking um, things of Kabbalism, taking things of ancient, uh, you know, really Baalism worship, uh, contemplative practices and meditation, chantings and Eastern type uh, meditation sort of rituals, yoga type of things, and kind of syncretizing them with the worship of Jehovah, the worship of God, and, and giving validity to those things based upon what we're calling them now. And he says this, his quote, this Tilden Edwards, he says, what makes a practice Christian or not isn't its source, but its intent. In other words, it doesn't matter where what we're doing comes from, 
But if we're doing it for the right reasons, then that validates its practice, regardless of what it is. That's the error of Uzzah in this whole thing. Jesus said this to a woman in, um, in Jerusalem in his day on the earth who got into an argument or a debate with Jesus about where was the proper place to worship. Jesus kind of called her out on some things going on in her life, and she was trying to deflect attention from her own personal life, and she turns it to a religious debate. And she says to Jesus, she said, well, you guys say that Jerusalem is the proper place to worship. And our people up here in Samaria say that up here is the place where God is to be worshipped. What do you say? And Jesus kind of puts an end to the argument, not by validating worship in Jerusalem, but by simply saying these words to the woman. He said, listen, woman. He said, and he, I'm sure he said that in the most respectful terms, you know. <laughs> he said, the time is coming and now is when the Father seeks such that will worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such, and then he repeats himself, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. What Tilden Edwards, what Uzzah, what these men propagate is basically worship in spirit. That if something makes me feel closer to God, if something validates my experience of his presence or makes me feel or draws me close in some sensual way to the person of God, then that validates what I'm doing. That's spirit, and we should worship in spirit. Our spiritual senses should be alive. They should be awake. They should be stimulated when we're in the presence of God. Those things are real. He gives us a sense of discernment, spiritual vision, spiritual tasting of his presence. Those things are real, but not at the neglect or the expense of truth. We worship in spirit and in truth. What is truth? Truth is according to what God has revealed in his word. He has told us who he is. He has told us how he is to be worshipped. He has told us the acceptable way wherein we approach and how we approach. And with God, if our worship is going to please him, it must not only be in spirit, but it must also be in truth. And truth is equally important to God in the way that we approach him. And the error of Uzzah here is that he is ignoring what God has said about the way something is to be done. And in the process, he also touches the glory of God, and for it he is smitten, and he brings this thing to a screeching halt. Well, notice David's reaction to it in verse 9. It says, I'm sorry, in verse 8, it says that David was displeased. I imagine that's probably a little bit of an understatement. First of all, David all of a sudden realizes that the thing that he's doing with the supreme motivation in his heart of pleasing God is not pleasing God. And that's a displeasing thing. Remember when Cain, way back in the beginning, Genesis, remember when Cain brought an offering of his fruits and vegetables to God? And it says that his offering was rejected. And Cain was displeased. Because here he put his heart and soul into something that he was bringing to God, and God refused it. It wasn't acceptable with God. Now, God's word to Cain was, if you do what's right, you will be accepted. This isn't personal, Cain. This is a process. There's a, 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 an issue here, is that you're offering me something that isn't acceptable to me. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You're bringing me the works of your hands, and I appreciate your labor and your effort and the quality of what you're bringing, but this isn't how I'm worshipped. 
So David has that same sense now. He's doing something for God, but God says, no. This isn't the last time God's going to say no to David. He's going to say no next week too. Chapter 7, you know. <laughs> Safe. God says no. And David is displeased. I imagine David is also displeased in this whole thing because he's probably a little bit embarrassed. He's called together 30,000 of the prominent men and families of Israel to the celebration. And God has turned off the music and said, David, sit down. You're out of line and out of order in this whole thing. The eyes are on you. And I'm not pleased. Imagine David's a little embarrassed. He's probably a little bit upset with God, as can happen to us from time to time. Don't don't raise your hands in here. <laughs> but have, has that ever happened to you, uh, that God has done something in our lives or not done something in our lives or not accepted something in our lives, and our initial reaction to God's reaction is that we're not very pleased with the way God is handling a specific situation. And so David is displeased with the reaction of God to this thing. And, and it says that he's displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And so he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah, which means breach of Uzzah, unto this day. Now, David is wise because it tells us in verse 9 that David was afraid of the Lord that day. And so David leaves the, I'm not happy with you, God, phase, and he turns it into the, okay, I'm afraid of you, God, phase, very quickly. And that's a wise thing. Let your upsetness with God quickly be turned into the fear of God, even as it was with David. And David said, how shall the ark of God come to me? So David says, I, I need to stop right now dead in my tracks and I need to figure out what went wrong here. Because David doesn't know yet why God is displeased. He just knows that God's not happy, doesn't know why. So it could be a lot of things. He could be, for David, David could be saying, is God upset because I'm doing this? Maybe God didn't want the ark brought from Gibeah. Maybe God wanted, he was happy living there, you know, and he doesn't want to be in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so he doesn't, he didn't want to move and we're forcing something upon God that God didn't want. And so David says, maybe that's the issue. It, it could also be that God wants it somewhere else. Maybe Jerusalem isn't the place where God wants his capital to be. And I've acted presumptuously and maybe everything I've done this far has been a waste of time. David thinks maybe that could be the, the case. Does God have something personal against Uzzah? Maybe this guy had something going on in his life and, you know, and God just saw an opportunity. I don't know. Does God have some problem with me? David, my, David doesn't know. It could be anything right now why God has brought this thing and so David, his initial reaction is, we're just going to stop. We're not going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem at this time. David goes, um, notice in verse 10. So David would not remove the Ark of the Lord unto him in the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. He's like, I don't like him. So I don't like Obed-Edom. We'll send it to his house. <laughs> and, so, and so so he sends the ark to the house of Obed-Edom and immediately Obed-Edom uh, died and everyone in his house and all of his neighbors uh, at the wrath of God because, because of it. No. <laughs> Essentially what happens here is that David has three months wherein he's going to figure out 
what in the world, what went wrong here? Why is it that God is not pleased? Keep a finger here and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Because what we're told in Chronicles that we're not told here is what took place during these three months. It says in verse 1, it says, And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, oh, by the way, um, if, if you look back in your, with your eyes, the, the event with Uzzah happens in chapter 13. So this passage that we're reading is after Uzzah is already smitten. Okay, so Uzzah's now dead, and David is figuring out what, what, what went wrong. That's what's happening in chapter 15. And so in that interim, it says that David made a, made a tent and a place for the ark of God. Then David said in verse 2, he said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them has the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord unto his place, which he prepared for it. And David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Kohath. That's what God wanted. It's what he said back in the law. Uriel, the chief, and his brethren, a hundred and twenty. Look down to verse 12, same chapter. It says, and he said unto them, you are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel into the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us for, that's a reason word, the reason is that we sought him not after due order. In other words, the reason for the breach, and David realizes this now, is because we didn't do it the right way. We didn't do it according to the way that God wanted it done. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves. That means they, they, they purified themselves according to the law to bring up the ark of, of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders. Do you see that? God's intent and will is that his glory be carried in the lives of his people. It's never to be done by some method, by some worldly cart, that, 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 the innovation of men in some way. It's to be carried in the lives of God's people. Upon their shoulders, with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded um, uh, according to the word <clears throat> of the Lord. Now, look down one more passage. Look in verse 25, just a couple of verses, 25 and 26. It says, So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And it came to pass 
when God helped the Levites that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that they offered seven bullocks and seven rams. And so, so basically, David, during this three months' time, he figures out what went wrong. And what he comes to the conclusion is that it's the priest's responsibility to carry the Ark of God upon their shoulders after they've been sanctified that these are cleansed, called people. They're to do it according to the order and according to the word of God, and God is to be the helper of them. God is to be involved in this thing. We are not to do this independent of him. That's what it says in verses 25 and 26, that the Lord God helped the Levites. And so David realizes this is the, pro- the process. Now back in Samuel, notice in verse 11, it says, and the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his house. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertains unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. When David realizes that Obed-Edom's house is is blessed, it rules out all the other possibilities. It has nothing to do with where the ark is living. God's happy to live in Obed's house. He's happy in Gibeah. God will be happy in Jerusalem. It ain't that. You know, it isn't the fact that he was transported. It's not, it's none of that. You know, he realized, whoa, Obed-Edom's house is being blessed because of the presence of the ark. Here's David's mindset. This is David. You ready for it? I want the whole nation to be blessed. So I want the ark of the covenant in Jerusalem. Now I know how to do it. And so it filled David's heart with gladness. Listen, to bring God into a place where the whole nation could be blessed because of his presence and his place. Now, the fear of God, the right thing being done in the right way, verse 13, it says, And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. Now, how long does that take? Oh, my goodness. They take six steps, <laughs> right? Stop. And they offer another offering unto the Lord. And then they go six paces and they offer another offering unto the Lord. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The Bible says that there is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. There is one acceptable approach unto God, and that is through the blood of the spotless, perfect, and eternal Lamb of God. There is no other approach. And what David is doing here is he is putting aside every worldly method, every cart, every innovation of men, everything that could attach itself to the worship of God that looks good, that sounds good, that feels good, And he gives to God that one thing that God has asked for, the blood. And he does it the way God wants. It's a right thing done a right way. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod, meaning that he wasn't wearing his royal robes. He wasn't doing this as King David. He was doing this as David. 
So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, this is David's wife, the daughter of Saul, Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place, God's place, in the midst. Pause right there. God's place is in the midst. And that's where God desires to be set. And that's where David set him. God's intent and move here at the beginning of his reign is to set God in the place where God belongs as the epicenter of all that they are and all that they will do as a nation. In his place, in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings there before uh, the Lord. We're going to stop there in terms of our, our progress in our text because I want to talk to you about what David did uh, just in our closing moments here. What, what David did in bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem is the greatest thing that David ever could do as the king and as the ruler of the nation. And what David did in his day then with the ark, the glory, and the presence of God, listen, it is the greatest need of the generation that we're living in right now. Is that the glory and the presence and the person of God be brought out from the place of wherever it has been cast aside, whether it's in the margins whether it's in the house of some Abinadab somewhere or in the house of some Obed-Edom, which it will always bless that household when, it, when it's the, the head of that household. But the place where the glory and the presence of God belongs is in the very midst, in the very center of all things, whether it's of a nation, whether it's of a church, whether it's of a household or a family, or whether it's of the heart of an individual. The place where the presence of God belongs is in the very epicenter. And happy is the man that realizes, like David did early in his reign, that every step that I have ever taken in my life has led me to where I am right now. And God has been good to me. And God has preserved me. And God is leading me for his name's sake, for his kingdom's sake, and for his people's sake. And I exist not for my own purposes. And my life has nothing to do with me. My life has everything to do with him. And what he's called me to do and who he's called me to be is one who puts his glory and his presence in the center of everything in my world and everything under my influence. And that is the purpose for my existence. That is why I live. That is the greatest need in our generation and in our day right now. Turn to Psalm chapter 48.
It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled and they passed together. They saw it and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them there and pain as of a woman in travail. You break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. If you take the, 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 the substance of those first five verses of Psalm chapter 47, what you have there is a description of what takes place spiritually when God is the center of, of, a, of a region or an area or of a life. That he's greatly to be praised, that he's beautiful for situation, that he elevates his people. God is known in the palaces, in the place of rulership. The kings of the world pass together, they all marvel, they're troubled, they haste away. Fear comes upon all the enemies of God. I mean, it's just a picture of, of God being in the center, of his glory being magnified. But then notice what he says in verse 8. It says, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of our God, or the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. I want you to just think about that for one moment. Actually, let, let me just give to you um, the, end, the end of the uh, psalm. Look at verse 10. It says, according unto thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Just think about it for just a minute. Think about the name of the Lord. Think about all of his names. You know, he is the I am, the everlasting God, the almighty, the Lord, our provider, the God who fights for us, the Lord, our righteousness, the Lord, our shepherd who leads us in the way. I mean, he is Jehovah, the all becoming one. He's the, the omnipotent, everlasting God. So, so he says, as is your name, O God, so is your praise. Think about the size of God and all, all that he is. Then let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Now, notice the close, verse 12. He says, walk around Zion. Zion for you and me is just the spiritual world that, that's invisible to our, our, our physical eye, but that we live in spiritually. Walk around. Just consider just think about for a minute the, the spiritual kingdom of God that you and I are about. Walk around it in your mind. Go around about her and count all the towers. So just in your mind's eye, just the kingdom of God, just, just think about how big it is. All the tower, the watchtowers of, of God's kingdom. Mark well her bulwarks, her defenses. Consider her palaces the structures and dwelling places of God's kingdom that you may con that you might listen tell it to the generation following for this god this god that we're talking about here whose name is worthy of his praise to the ends of the, the earth, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, whose towers cannot be counted and whose defenses can't be understood, whose palaces are outside and beyond our imagination. This God, he says, this God is, not was, not will be, this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Now, let me ask you a question as we close here this morning and, and tie, it, tie it together with our, our study. Notice back up in verse 8. Look at the words, let them torture you. 
It says, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of our God. Can I ask you guys a question right now? When you consider your own spiritual experience and spiritual life and your relationship with God, when you think about your prayer life, when you think about your experience of God's power in your life, power over sin, power to serve, power to understand and perceive spiritual things, power to drink of the word of God and to understand it and enjoy him, power to walk in his presence and to walk in the light. When you think about your experience in just kingdom things, you think about your church experience, look around in society and look at the, the condition of the kingdom of God in Poughkeepsie and in Dutchess County and in your, your region and your realm. When you think about your family, think about your marriage, and you think about what God designed a marriage to be. What did God have in mind when he invented marriage, when he invented family? And you think about your own family life and what it is. I just want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever thought to yourself, is this it? Is this, is this it? Is this, God, this is God what you intended when you designed marriage? And this is what, what you made family to be? God, this is what you made church to be. And we, and we have a great church. You know, we have great, great experience. But you, know, you look at, you, you take the church and just blow it a little bit bigger than the walls of this place for a minute. And you think about the, the church at large in Dutchess County. You think about the state of Christendom in 2017 in Dutchess County in New York State in the United States of America. And you say, really, this is it? This is what, this is what the everlasting, omnipotent, unlimited, all-powerful God, this is what it looks like? When a God this big is a part of our lives and in our midst, you ever, you ever think maybe, maybe we're not where we should be? As we have heard, so we have seen. When we read Nehemiah chapter 8, and we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 them reading the word of God. And for three hours a day, the people are standing there, the entire nation, with jaws gaping, listening to the word of God as every word goes in and pierces them. And tears come out as they realize how far, far, far short they've fallen of God's glory. And then they repent and they weep and they say, God, we have failed miserably. And God pours out his spirit on them and he says, listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you see the revival that took place in those days. That's what we've heard. We read Acts chapter 2 when it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that they were all assembled with one accord. What does that even look like? We don't know what it means to agree about where to have breakfast. And these people were all with one accord. We don't even know what that is. And the Spirit didn't even fall yet. With one accord in one place. And it says that suddenly there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. The cloven tongues of fire descended. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues and prophesy as the Spirit gave them utterance. They immediately went out into the city and published the things that God was doing. And in one day, 3,000 people got saved. That's what we've heard. It says that they did gather daily in the church and from house to house and they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, having favor with God and all the people. It says that there was great joy in the city. It says that great grace was upon them all. That's what we've heard. We read about what happened in the city of Ephesus when the apostle Paul went in there. 
And he brought the word of God to them and he gave them God's truth. And it says that all of the people gathered together in the center of the city and they brought together their idols, their books, their witchcrafts, everything that had some form of godlessness in it, and they brought it and they burned it in the middle of the city and they counted the sum of it to be at least 50,000 pieces of silver. That's what we've heard. We've heard about what's taken place in various times when God has visited the earth in the days of Whitfield, in the days of the Wesleys, what he did in Wales back a couple of hundred years ago, what he did in New York City 150 years ago and in Philadelphia, what he did on the West Coast even as, as soon as 50 years ago. We've heard about all of those things. But can we say in honesty and in truth that as we have seen, heard, so have we seen. I can't. Because quite honestly, if what I have of God today is all there is to have of God, then everlasting, almighty, omnipotent, those names don't match up with my experience. And what that tells me is that there's more. There's more of him to experience than what I'm experiencing presently. So what does it take? It takes the glory of God and the presence of God and the person of God to be moved from wherever it is and brought back to the center. That's what it takes. And so for my life personally, because that's where I have the most power, it means saying, God, where have I put you? In the grand scheme of everything that, that makes me what I am, what's in the center and where do you fall in relation to that center? And then saying, God, whatever it takes, come to the center. Come back to the center. In my family, in my marriage, in my life, in my affections, in everything that I am. And then it takes for me to fall on my knees and say, God, though I'm not King David or the President of the United States or the County Executive or any person of any authority, you said, God, that you sought for a man. I can fall into that. I qualify there. I am a man that you sought for a man that would stand in the gap, that would make up the hedge, that would go between me and the land that I destroy it not. But I found none, God said. But I'm a man and I can pray. And I can say, God, you said, you said that your glory, that your person, that your power is willing and able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or even think. You said, God, right here in Psalm 47, that in verse 13, mark her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you might tell it to the generation following. God, you said that this is to be recorded for my generation and that this God is our God even today. God, your word tells me that you'll do it again. That I am entitled in my generation to be able to say to my children and to my grandchildren, this is what I heard, this is what I've seen. He'll do it for you too. And I can pray and say, God, do it, do it, do it. That's what we need, guys. That's what we need. We don't need more church services. We don't need another Bible study. We don't need new songs. We certainly don't need new carts. 
new innovative ways. We need God. We need him at the center. That's our call. That's before us right now. It starts here. It starts with, with me. It starts right here. God be the center of my life. It starts in my home. God be the center of my home. I'm the priest of my home. I'm going to make you the center of my home. I prepared a place. You're going to be in that place, God, in my home. And then it's in my prayer. God, pour out. God, have mercy on a generation. Look at the condition. I read an article yesterday, opiate use up 200% just in the past 10 years. That's the condition of the culture that we're living in right now. A whole generation that's walking and groping in darkness. They don't know their right hand from their left. But what does the word of God say? He says that he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from their wicked ways and live. He says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him. And what he asks of us is that we pray. That we pray. Lord, come. Not, you know, not, I mean, yeah, come, return. But Lord, visit. Lord, revive. Lord, save. Lord, bring conviction. 